You are listening to the Vine Church Sermon Podcast. Thanks for joining us. For more information about the Vine Church, please visit our website at www.thevinemadison.org. Well, why don't we go ahead and find our seats and we'll get going here today. So glad to see you guys all gathered today. Man, there's so many new faces, it seems like, all the time. If you're new, we would love to get to know you. I'm Zach. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, if you're new, Terry's going to tell you how to get plugged in. But, um, man, we're just a church that's all about community and, and our, our small groups called city groups are probably the best place to get plugged in uh, if you're thinking like this is the church where you want to be. And so I encourage you to do that. So I've been, I've been gone for like three weeks, two of those well, three Sundays. Um, two of those Sundays were in Ecuador, and I had the privilege of teaching uh, in the ministry that we partner with there called Compassion Connection, where we teach uh, leaders and pastors that have really no access to good theological education. And so I have a privilege to go down and, and teach. This, this year, I got to teach on church planting, intro to church planting. And Morgan, I think she's in Next Gen, and Jen Wright, who's right over here, uh, and then a couple from Eastside Church. There's Morgan out in the lobby. She's waving, but, you know, anyway. Um, and uh, Jen and Morgan did phenomenal, as you would expect, uh, serving the conference. And then uh, Ben from Eastside Church and a gal from his church. Um, Tina, gosh, I'm getting old now. The brain just does not remember names. Don't be offended if I've known you for like 10 years and can't remember your name. Um, it happens. So anyway, uh, Ecuador was amazing and was really thankful for that. And the ministry there is uh, Justin and Laurel doing a great job, doing a really good job. And so it's a beautiful ministry happening down there. And then uh, Kim and I just celebrated 25 years of marriage. And yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. We've, uh, we've been married longer than we haven't been married. That's kind of a cool thing to be able to say, you know. And um, man, I just I recommend for all of you that are married to make make that a priority. Like every five years, this is just what we do. Do your own thing, but just what we do is like every five years we try to do a, a special trip. And so this year we got to go to Ireland and um, beautiful country and a great time just to celebrate what God has done in our lives. And um, so really really thankful for that. So it's good to be back. Uh, you know, summer's crazy, so there's lots of different trips and things that that happen, um, but I'm just so thankful. You know, you get away and you get perspective, and I'm just so thankful for our church. So thankful for our church. So many great people, and um, what God is doing is is not uh, something that we should just gloss over and take for granted. It's it's a beautiful thing that's happening here. So I want you guys to know that, know that and hope that you can see that with me. We're going to uh, announce here uh, some new member candidates. And so, yeah, we've got um, some folks that have taken our membership class and done some interviews, and, and so you can look at the list of names here. Um, and so by our bylaws and constitution, we want to give you guys, uh, as members, if you're a member here, um, two weeks for any feedback of any concerns that you might have with any of these folks becoming members. Um, reach out to the, to the elders on Slack if you have any concerns. And so um, take a look at those names. We're just so thankful to see those names there. And then hopefully in a couple of weeks, we will officially um, 
call them new family members. And so that's how that works, okay? All right. So we are uh, continuing the life of David. So if you have a Bible, open it up to 1 Samuel chapter 30. 1 Samuel chapter 30. And uh, we're almost coming to the end of 1 Samuel and David's life as it's uh, um, recounted there. And we're going to pick up and look at chapter 30 here in a second. You know, sometimes God brings us low to get our attention. I can speak to that in my life. You can probably speak to that in your life. Sometimes when we're at our lowest, our, 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 our ears are most open to who God is and what he has to say. C.S. Lewis says something like, some of you would probably remember this, this uh, quote. I'm going I'm to probably have to paraphrase it because I can't remember it word for word. But it's like God whispers to us in our, in our, um, in our what? No, he screams at us in our sufferings. He, he whispers at us in our something. Like when, when life is going well, here's the, 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 here's the heart of it. When life's going well, it's like God is, God is whispering. But when, when we're suffering, it's like God, we hear him. He screams to us in our sufferings. Like we can really hear him, right? Some of you can just Google that quote and, and find it. You can shout it out or put it on Slack after this. Um, but that's true. What C.S. Lewis is getting at is true. We see that in David's life today. In the, in the chapters that preceded chapter 30 today, we see David, he's wavering in his trust of the Lord. And he takes matters into his own hands. He's scheming, controlling. He's joining the ranks of God's enemies. He's feeling this pressure from King Saul. We can understand that. If, if someone's trying to kill you over and over again, you might act a little weird. You might act a little faithless. If you're, if you're just being stalked by someone trying to kill you. So we can have compassion for David, but it doesn't make what he did right. In chapter 27 and 29 that David Jordan did such a great job uh, unpacking last week, we, we notice that God is not even mentioned once in the account of David among the Philistines, like you heard about last week. If you missed it, check out the podcast. And, and for David, it just kind of seems like in those chapters, 27, 29, hanging out with the Philistines, like God's not even really in his vision at all. He's just kind of doing his own thing. And what's at center stage is that David's taking matters into his own hands. He's doing his own planning, his own scheming, his own controlling. At the expense of trusting God. But God is faithful always to his chosen ones. Always. And sometimes God uses circumstances to awaken us to our need for him and, and bring us lovingly, though painful, lovingly back to himself. And that's what we're going to see David working through in our text today. There's a tragedy that takes place and it causes David to return in dependence on God. 
to seek the Lord and not his own wisdom. And here's the main point that we're going to see flow through this text, chapter 30. God will rescue when we turn to him, and this mercy will naturally overflow to others. Okay, this is what we're going to see this morning. God will rescue when we turn to him. It's really simple. God will rescue when we turn to him. And this mercy will naturally overflow to others. So let's, let's give more context to, to what has preceded chapter 30 with a little more detail, just to set the stage for you. So David, he's being pursued by Saul over and over again, trying to kill him. I mean, that's a, a theme that just runs through David's life up to this point. And so David's thinking, man, where's the one place where Saul's not going to get at me? Well, probably with the arch enemy of God's people, the Philistines. So David joins them. He lives among them. He lives in their land and joins them. He joins them in battles. And, and one day the Philistines are about to attack God's people the nation of Israel. And David is with them, with his army, with his men. And if you're an original reader right now, like to us it doesn't sound like that big of a deal, but if you're an original reader, this is where you'd be holding your breath. Like, is David going to attack his own people? Like, that would be crazy. Like, these are God's chosen people, and David's supposed to be his anointed one, and he's going to attack God's chosen people along with the Philistines? What's David going to do? Well, interestingly enough, the Bible doesn't say because the decision is made for him. And the Philistine leaders, they, they just grow a little suspicious of David at this point. And some of the, uh, like, basically the elders of the Philistines, they're like, no, we're not doing this. This is probably a plot on David's part to turn around and attack us as we're attacking his people. So you could read about it in 27 and 29, but they send David back. They're like, you're not going to war with us on the nation of Israel. Decision is made for you. And so David is sent back with his men to the place where he was staying in the land of the Philistines. And that place is called Ziklag. Ziklag. Okay, kind of a weird name. But all that is context to what, what, what we find in chapter 30. So David rejected to go into battle with the Philistines. And so they're marching back to this place where they've been staying for about 16 months in the land of the Philistines, okay? And what do they find? when they arrive at this place where they've been staying. Tragedy. Unspeakable tragedy. Look at verse 1 with me. Now when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negev and against Ziklag. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one, but carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire, and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. 
Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives also had been taken captive. Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. But can you imagine this? This is an absolute crisis. Like we, re- we read accounts like this and it's easy to be removed from it emotionally because, because it happened, you know, a few millennia ago. But I think it's important for us to remember like things like this still happen in our world today. Things like this still happen in our world today. Some of you will remember this. On the night of April 14th and 15th, 2014, 276 mostly Christian female students aged from 16 to 18 were kidnapped by the Islamic terrorist group Boko Haram from the, government's, from the government girls' secondary school at the town of Chaibak in Borno State, Nigeria. Prior to the raid, the school had been closed for weeks due to deteriorating security conditions, but the girls were in attendance in order to take final exams in physics. 57 of the schoolgirls escaped immediately following the incident by jumping from the trucks on which they had been transported, and others have been rescued by the Nigerian armed forces on various occasions. Hopes have been raised that the 219 remaining girls might be released, however some girls are believed to be dead. Amina Ali, one of the missing girls, was found in May 2016. She claimed that she remained that the remaining girls were still alive, but that six had died. As of April 14, 2021, seven years after the initial kidnapping, over a hundred of the girls remain missing. Can you imagine? That's a horror movie in real life. Like I've got two daughters of my own about this age. Like I would be losing my mind. And this is the kind of thing that, that, that David and his men are facing in this text. And so verse 6, look at verse 6. It kind of makes sense in terms of the response. And David was greatly distressed for the people spoke of stoning him because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. Now this reaction, wanting to stone David, that that might be irrational, but when your kids are kidnapped and might be dead, it's pretty hard to be rational. But I want you to pay attention to what the text says about David. Look at the end of verse 6. It says, but David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. In the midst of this crisis of crises, this need of help, this need of guidance, David strengthened himself in the Lord. What does that mean? What does that mean? Look at this quote on the screen. This is what really helps us. To strengthen ourselves in God means we remind ourselves We remind ourselves 
of what Scripture has to say about God and His promises. And we bring those truths to bear on the situation. Let me just stop right there. Just as a, a tangential comment that is so important for our Christianity, for our discipleship, Christianity isn't so much about you learning new things, but it's, but, but it's much, much, much more about reminding yourself of things you already know. And that's what he's saying here about how to strengthen yourself. Like, when my, if, if my kids get kidnapped, I'm going to be forgetting a lot of stuff. You know what I mean? My, I'm going to be emotionally flooded, overwhelmed. I know truth about God, but I'm going to need myself to speak to myself, and I'm going to need you all to speak to me in the midst of whatever crisis, and the same goes for you. So to strengthen ourselves in God means we remind ourselves of what Scripture says about God and His promises. And we bring those truths to bear on the situation. Every trial causes opposing voices to ring in the ears of the child of God. One is the voice of our circumstances telling us that our situation is hopeless. The other is the voice of faith telling us that our God is sufficient for the trial. So look at what David does next. He strengthens himself in the Lord, and that leads to action. What's the action? Look at verse 7. And David said to Abiathar, the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. Now we learned about the ephod a few weeks ago. It was basically Old Testament priestly way of communing with God, speaking with God. So Beathar brought the ephod to David, and David inquired of the Lord, Shall I pursue after this band, the Amalekites, who stole all his family and all of his men's families and everything? Shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? God, he answered him, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. So think about what David is doing here. In contrast to what he was doing in chapter 27, 29. Look at verse 8. He inquired of the Lord. So David didn't hold like a leadership summit with his guys to strategize. He doesn't run away and hide in fear because they want to stone him. He doesn't implode with stress. What does it say? Verse 8, he seeks the Lord. He seeks the Lord. He inquires of the Lord. He turns his face toward the Lord. Not towards himself, not towards his circumstances, to the Lord. He inquires of the Lord. He seeks the Lord. communication with the Lord. That's verse 8. See it? And again, this is the first time we hear of David seeking the Lord since he's been living in the land of the Philistines. It's like God brings about this horrible circumstance to awaken David for his need of him, of his need to return to him. 
And what does God do? God graciously responds. You see that in verse 8? God graciously responds to him. David seeks him and he is found by him. Like this is the grace of God, is it not? And this returning of David to the Lord, to seeking him, communion with him, communication with him, this is a real turning point in David's life, in this phase of his life. He's no longer just charting his own course, doing his own thing, taking matters into his own hands, but seeking the path that God is going to chart for him. I wonder if any of us can relate to this scenario. Has God used a crisis in your life to cause you to return to him? Like there's so many possible reactions when faced with different crises in our lives, right? But what jumps off the page, I think, is just the simple, simple truth. Seek the Lord. Seek the Lord. Seek the Lord. It's like Peter said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Seek the Lord. Seek the Lord. Make this the priority over and over again. May our planning, our attempts to maneuver the situation with wisdom, may that sometimes be necessary but secondary. Probably necessary but secondary. Primary is seek the Lord. Seek the Lord. You might not hear an audible voice like David did, but we have God's audible voice right here. And we pray and we do community with one another. We ask people to seek the Lord with us, pray with us, read scripture with us, remind me of truth with me. May this be who we are as a church. God will rescue when we turn to him. And this mercy will naturally overflow to others. So we, we see that David acts upon this. He hears God's word, the promise of God, and he, by faith, doesn't say, God, come on, are you really going to do this? No, he's, he believes him. That's Christianity. I hear what God says, and I'm going to act upon it. I believe what God says by faith, and I'm going to do something with it. So what's he do? Verse 9. So David set out, and the 600 men who were with him, and they came to the brook Besor, where those who were left behind stayed. But David pursued, he and 400 men, 200 stayed behind, who were too exhausted to cross the brook Besor. Now, here's something we've got to understand the, the world of the Bible a little bit. This sounds simple. What we've read, God's promise to David that, yep, if you go and you, and, and you pursue, you will find them and you will get everything back. Your wives, your kids, your stuff. Problem is, what the Bible doesn't mention, is that the Amalekites were a nomadic people. And God didn't tell them where they were. They needed a gift from God to know where to go. But notice that David doesn't stop and go, God, tell me where they are. He just goes. God said it, I'm going to go. 
I mean, he doesn't even know where he's going. They could have been anywhere. But David doesn't wait. He believes God's promise. And he just sets out, not knowing where to go, how to look, how to do this. But God provides. Verse 11. They found an Egyptian in the open country and brought him to David, and they gave him bread and he ate. They gave him water to drink, and they gave him a piece of cake of figs and two clusters of raisins. And when he had eaten, his spirit revived, for he had not eaten bread or drunk water for three days and three nights. So they stumble upon an Egyptian who was really suffering. And David said to him, To whom do you belong, and where are you from? He said, I'm a young man of Egypt, servant to an Amalekite, and my master left me behind because I fell sick three days ago. We had made a raid against the Negev of the Cherethites and against that which belongs to Judah and again the Negev of Caleb and we burned a Ziklag with fire. And David said to him, will you take me down to this band? And he said, swear to me by God that you will not kill me or deliver me into the hands of my masters and I will take you down to this band. Verse 16. And when, we had, and when he had taken him down, behold, they were spread abroad all over the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. And David struck them down from twilight until the evening of the next day. And not a man of them escaped except 400 young men who mounted camels and fled. David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken and David rescued his two wives. Nothing was myth- missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken. David brought back all. David also captured all the flocks and herds, and the people drove the livestock before them and said, this is David's spoil. Look at this quote. That's just a perfect summary of that passage of our chapter. It's evident that David could never have found his enemies if God had not provided the Egyptian servant to lead him. Likewise, by trusting in God's word, we will learn the truth of Paul's promise. My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. The same God who had brought David low in order to restore his heart was fully capable of restoring to David all that he lost. So I want you to see the mercy of God all over this text. God speaking with David and giving him his promise, that's mercy. God providing this Egyptian slave to lead them to recover their families is mercy. The mercy of God all over this text. God will rescue when we turn to him. And this mercy will naturally overflow to others. God will rescue when we turn to him. And this mercy will naturally overflow to others. So now let's see. It seems like kind of like the end of the story, right? We have the, the, the tension and the resolution. But there's kind of a little epilogue here that really, really helps us see the gospel in this. I want you to see how this mercy affects David's heart. 
Look at verse 21. Then David came to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to follow David and who had been left at the brook Basor. And they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him. And when David came near to the people, he greeted them. Then all the wicked and worthless fellows among the men who had gone with David said, because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered except that which may lead, I'm sorry, except that each man may lead away his wife and children and depart. Now listen to how David responds. But David said, you shall not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. He has preserved us and given into our hand the band that came against us. Who would listen to you, to you in this matter? For as his share is who for as his share is who goes down into the battle, so shall his share be who stays by the baggage. They shall share alike. And he made it a statue and a rule for Israel from that day forward to this day. So you got these guys that are like, we did the work. These guys are too weak and they just got to chill with the bags. No, 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 no. They don't get anything. And David says, nope, that's not how this works. What's the foundation of why he says that? It's mercy. Because who gets the credit? Look at verse 23. You shall not do so, my brothers, with what we did. That's not what it says, is it? With what the Lord has given us. See, David's just saying, our victory is just mercy. It's the Lord's victory. We don't get the credit. God gets the credit. He's just given us a gift, right? He has preserved us and given it into our hand, the band that came against us. See, the emphasis is on God. The emphasis is on God. The Lord, he has preserved. See, David thought it was his power and might that saved the families from slavery or destruction or worse, then maybe he would be arrogant and not share with the guys that hung out with the bags. But when the mercy of God has truly touched your heart, you'll never be proud, greedy, stingy. See, David knows that he's, I mean, verse 23 shows it, jumps off the page. David knows he's a recipient of mercy. Undeserved, unearned mercy of the Lord. So then, how could he not show this to others? See, when you understand the mercy of God, it affects how you relate to others. When you understand that you don't deserve mercy and you receive it, it's going to affect how you treat others who you perceive as maybe not deserving as much as you and how you relate to them. And that's the point of the text. God will rescue when we turn to him and this mercy will naturally overflow to others. There's a beautiful illustration of this in the life of Jesus. And it's when Jesus goes to this guy, his name is Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus is a shady character. 
He's complicit with the oppressor. That doesn't sound very good. Complicit with the oppressor. He's a thief. He's a tax collector. Charges too much. Gets rich off of it. Basically, he's gotten rich off being complicit with the oppressor. Like, that's a shady dude. Nobody likes that guy. And Jesus says, hey, I want to hang out with you. Like, what? Like, are there people that you know in your life that if Jesus were to show up in the flesh right now and he wouldn't hung out with them, you'd kind of raise an eyebrow at Jesus? Probably. That's exactly what Jesus does. He pursues the undeserving. He says, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Translation, it's not the healthy who need mercy. It's those who don't deserve it. Those who are a mess. Those who can't get their act together. So Jesus goes and he hangs out with Zacchaeus. Shares, shares a meal with him. Pure mercy. And what is the response? Zacchaeus says, hey, I'm willing to make this right. I'm going to show mercy to others. I've been shown mercy by Jesus. So I'm going to show mercy to others. This mercy of God is going to affect my life in such a way that you can observe something. You can observe a change in me. I'm, I'm handing out money to people where I'm taking too much. I'm giving it back. You can read the account. But the point is, God will rescue when we turn to him, and this mercy will naturally overflow to others. See, Jesus is the true and better David. Jesus is the king. He's the true king who lavishly shares what he has earned to those who don't deserve it. Jesus earned it all. Life, death, perfect life. Never sinned. Perfect righteousness. He shares that with us. When we come to him by faith, his perfection is credited to us. It's a gift so that no one can boast. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. So the question for us is, do we actually believe this is true? You need to be reminded of that again this morning. See, if you find stinginess alive in your heart, or maybe just in a, pit, a, a, a propensity toward stinginess, or greed, or self-righteousness, maybe it's because you fail to see how everything you have is a gift. It's mercy. Like the fact that God doesn't allow his wrath to fall on us, that the sun rises on the just and the unjust every day over the wicked city of Madison, Wisconsin. That's mercy. That's mercy. That's grace. He causes the rain this morning. We've needed it, right? The rain to fall on the just and the unjust. That's mercy. That's grace. And when you see that, when you know what King Jesus has accomplished for you 
by sheer grace and mercy, when he when he's rescued you, called out to you, and made you a son and a daughter through spiritual adoption, when he's rescued you and called out to you, and forgave your sins and wrote your name in the eternal Lamb's book of life, when you see all this, are reminded of it, remember it, it changes your heart. It has to. It humbles you. And when that happens, it has to be shared, right? It has to overflow in our relationships. It has to overflow to those that just hang out with the baggage and maybe didn't do as much. So people that know this grace and mercy like David knew, it makes churches one of the most, it should make church one of the most beautiful places to be. Because the people that are so deeply touched by mercy know and see that mercy, it has to flow to others. It will flow to others. May it be so. Lord, would you help us? God will rescue when we turn to him, and this mercy will naturally overflow to others. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you make this true in our hearts? Would you make this true in our words, in our actions, in our families, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, in our relationships with roommates? Wives, sons, daughters, husbands, parents. Lord, would you do this? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.